This is Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Rapper and singer Dessa is known for her philosophical words and pushing musical boundaries on albums like Parts of Speech and Chime. The same can be said for her contributions to the Minneapolis hip-hop collective Doomtree, who are equally engaged in genre-bending and intricate wordplay. She and the group are so influential there that the city's mayor once declared December 14th to be Doomtree Day. Beyond music, Dessa is also a poet and author with three books out. She is a guest lecturer on topics like love, art, and ethics, and she hosted several past episodes of the music show The Lower Town Line on public television. The Izzy's ice cream location in Minneapolis even created a flavor in her honor, Dessa's Existential Crunch. When I first got to know her last year, we did an interview for Playboy.com about her using neuroscience to get over her ex, which included working with renowned biological anthropologist Dr. Helen Fisher. That was an intriguing conversation, so for this episode of Psy Jams, we expanded our scope into discussing her love for the behavioral and biological sciences, which have fascinated her since she was young. I called Dessa, now at home in New York City, via Skype, and we chatted about which science classes she took in college, the kinds of studies that have interested her, our collective cultural evolution, and how the mainstream understanding and expectations of science often don't serve us well, and how they have become highly politicized. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat for Psy Jams. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. We didn't really get into it last time. You've been a big science geek, I guess, for a long time. I have, yeah. Yeah. Especially like the behavioral stuff. You know, that's always been interesting to me, I think, probably since high school, maybe even before. Do you remember when you first really got interested in just in science in general? Yeah, it's tricky. It's like I sort of don't remember not being into it. Even like as a really little kid, I think trying to figure out why things were happening, what made me um, probably sort of, you know, an irritating toddler. But I feel like that <laughs> that impulse, that impulse of like, how come or, you know, what rule is governing this or why? I feel like that's sort of the the impulse of, of probably most scientific inquiry, you know. So. So, yeah, when I found out that was a that was a gig that people were doing, I, I always leaned in, I think, even just when there was like a, a science story on the news, you know, that that was an interesting piece to me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was a metal kid growing up and uh, and I was an honor student and people look at like heavy rock people or rappers and like, you know, they'd be surprised you're talking about science or like, you know, history or all I this know. other stuff. Isn't it funny? It's stupid, too. And I, it's, in some way, I feel like there can be sort of like, I don't know, there can be sort of an undercurrent of classism there, too. And, and you know, kind of imagining that with somebody who's into metal or somebody who's into hip hop is not then going to have, you know, an intellectual life. It's silly, right? It is. Were any specific subjects you, you liked about science that you studied in school? Yeah, for sure. I would say, um, so admittedly, my interest so far hasn't like extended past the molecular level. I admit that like chemistry, it didn't, it didn't light a fire inside me. But, um, but I really did like learning about, I remember like even just in the biological sciences, like why animals behave certain ways. And then by extension, why we are behaving in the ways that we do. Like, I remember first learning that, like, um, the surfaces of a plant that is exposed to sunlight will react to that sunlight by the, with the kind of a constriction of the cells. Right. And that's what causes that plant to lean towards the light. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, what an interesting simple mechanism to get a plant to, like, sunlust. You know, like, that's how that works. And then figuring out, you know, through kind of like behavioral psychology, what are the what are the inputs and outputs of the human machine sure. that might account for some of yeah, like our our complex behaviors too. Has there have there been any specific subjects that you'd mm-hmm. continue to follow, like through the news or online? Yeah, totally. I would say that I've always been a sucker for trying to understand how like environmental cues 
might inform without our awareness some of our more complicated decisions. So like anytime, anytime there's, there's like a really well done study that might link, let's say, uh, cognitive load, right? So you're thinking a lot about something, you're doing math in your head, something right. like that. How that would inform like our, our ability to resist temptation. So the idea is like, if you're asked to remember a really long number, and then I walk past you with a plate of dessert or like a, an option to choose a chocolate cake or a cup of fruit, that people who are actively remembering this really long number are going to lean cake because their ability to tamp down their impulse is lessened by that cognitive load. I love that kind of stuff. And I also really like, mm. I also really like learning about mating behaviors. I think there's a couple of scientists who write on it really, really well. And I always dig. In including Dr. Helen Fisher. Yeah, absolutely. Including Dr. Helen Fisher. She's done, you know, she's done some really rigorous work on like how testosterone, estrogen, and dopamine and serotonin might make for like general trends in dating behaviors that I think has been really fascinating. And, and there's also this woman named Mary Roach, who's like a science communicator, who I think is just total badass. Uh -huh. But she wrote a book called Bonk about, about sex and how it's done around the world, what drives it, and like how we compare to other animals, like, like pigs. That's been fascinating too, yeah. So I grew up outside of Boston, and I know, you know it's the, the, mm. the center of Puritanism in America. So it's always fascinating to me comparing the views of dating and sexuality, say, between Americans and Europeans. You know, there's even a joke I once heard, like, you know, Europeans don't marry, they just have kids. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And, like, our mating rituals are so are so are are still really very conventional. And yet I look at, like, millennials and Gen Z, and I think they're a little different. They're a little more open mm -hmm. about stuff. They're trying different things. They don't... They don't have necessarily the strict guidelines I think maybe Gen Xers and Boomers have. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, and all of it, you know, obviously is mitigated by culture in these huge ways. And, and it's tough to know what's culture and what's not. But, but even within those, like, really varied ways of mating and dating and flirtation, I mean, looking at how, like, blinking works or how, how, how shoulders are positioned as signs and signs of romantic interest. Like you find these like sort of courtship dances that I don't think any of us recognize as courtship dances until somebody sits there with a clipboard for a few years. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like compiling data across a lot, a lot, a lot of people. And then you go, oh, oh, okay. I guess I, I guess I didn't make up that blinking thing. I guess maybe that's part of a code that I didn't know I'm written in, you know? Well, it's funny to me, too, a lot of times how men and women view signals are very different. A lot of guys really misinterpret what women put out there because they make assumptions about what certain things mean. And I've never been that mm -hmm. kind of guy that says, oh, well, you know, she likes you because she did that. I'm like, I don't know about that, man. Just because that little cue you think is something, maybe really not be the case at all. And then a lot of other times sure. I'm oblivious to the obvious thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I should have seen that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh -huh. What's been the most fascinating reading you've done, actually, sort of on dating and, and, and rituals? Yeah, there's uh, there's been a couple, you know, an obvious, I'll, I might start with a caveat to say that, like, you know, as scientific knowledge advances one study at a time that I think a lot of times on the radio, it's really easy for a host to run off with kind of an exciting new finding, to explore the potential ramifications with like a dozen guests, and then 
you know, when you find out six months later that that work is being questioned, it feels like it negates the whole endeavor. Whereas in reality, it's just, it's stepwise progress, you know? So we have this sort of like obsession, I think, with individual studies that we publicize the hell out of sure. um, without sort of looking, yeah, without like looking at the bigger trend, which I think everybody suffers for. I wish I could remember who, who to attribute it to, but I heard somebody describe it like our kind of like amassed knowledge is like a destroyer. And each individual experiment is like shooting a spitball at the bow of the destroyer, nudging it left or right, you know? So there's, it's slow and incremental work, but, but there's been some, there's been some studies that I really dug about whether or not like the proteins in human tears, um, like how they function in sexual arousal or don't, it was just such a clever experimental design. Yeah. Where it was like, if you were to put saline on a Band-Aid and tape it beneath a guy's nose versus tears on a Band-Aid and tape it beneath a guy's nose and then ask that dude to watch, like, arousing footage porn, will he react differently based on the presence of, like, proteins in tears? And I just thought that that was... It was just a very clever experimental design. I dug it. And it did, it, it did at least to an extent in that study, um, inhibit arousal. And there was there was... Also some interesting studies about like waist to hip ratio and why that would be, um, why that would be an attractant and like what if anything, you know, might be signaled by like having a slender waist and round hips. And part of it was that, um, I know one of the ideas that was forwarded was that the kind of, of fat essentially that oh, yeah. a woman would hold in her hips is important for the neurological development of any kids that she might have. <laughs> so it was really like an indicator potentially of, uh, of reproductive fitness in these really unexpected and, and surprising ways. The fascinating thing about science is you actually, it, it's not like a one size fits all approach either because you can have people, for example, I know women who don't want to have kids and there are other women who just have this urge, die, they're dying to have kids. And it's, you know, it, it works differently in different people and you have some people who have that nurturing instinct, whether they're male or female and some people who just don't. I've always thought, found that kind of fascinating, too. Sure. I mean, you know, it, it all works on trends. So it's like, I think anytime you like you said before, if you were to make a general statement about Europeans and American sexual attitudes, like there's meaningful differences there. But when you're actually Absolutely. meeting when you're meeting someone, those differences are trends that there, there wouldn't be a good guide to make huge assumptions about any particular American or European, you know what I mean? That you actually yeah, yeah. meet, like the, the best way to find out what they're like is to talk to them and ask them. And I think similarly, you know, with the kind of evolutionary biological accounts of human behavior, that's not to say that's how we think about it. You know, it's like evolution works on us without us having to know it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, but and also you're right. It's, it doesn't account for culture and individual, you know, distinctions. Like I happen to be a, a woman who doesn't want kids, but I'm still fascinated by that science that governs the sure. species. Even if it's not like the reproductive impulses and at, at play in my own like little tiny personal life. So a lot of times I say the only people who know why they're dating are the two people themselves. And there are, yeah. and the rules change for every relationship. You cannot apply what happened to you in the past to what happens happening to you in the present because as you get older, that's what I've realized. It's the same thing I've discovered doing interviews. I'm like, how many of the same questions can I ask people? I'm like, oh, wait, I got older, you know, and mm. you come at it from a different perspective now. With each new relationship, then you start to hopefully, uh, presumably you're learning. Not everybody does. There's some people like always chase a type, you know, and then you really, mm. and I, I've, I've often le- told people, 
don't go after the same type. If it's not working for you, try something different. Yeah, see, that's tricky, though, because I feel like also one of the components that I think most people are looking for in a relationship is attraction. And I think it can feel as though attraction is beyond the scope of our voluntary control, whereas I can change my diet, right, and stay stay fed irrespective of whether or not I'm eating my favorite foods all the time. But it would be difficult to have a relationship, I think, where people don't feel attracted to their partner and still feel like they're having, they're being sustained by that relationship. So I'm sympathetic maybe to the recidivists, but yeah. And then you have the whole pronouns thing coming up. So you talk about cultural evolution and, you know, it's like he, she, they, Z, whatever. There's all this different stuff going on now. Um, my girlfriend's really been watch- into watching Billions, and there's a character on there that's, you know, mm. like androgynous, like they. You know, there's no mm. real mention of the sexuality off the bat. And that goes against some, it goes, it, well, it goes against what some people think is normal biological programming. But then now you're starting to figure out, well, what is normal biological programming? Yeah, I mean, I think also we've constantly positioned the argument as, as nature versus nurture, yeah. um, presuming that that's a strict binary. And then, and then also the idea that even if there is you know, some meaningful biological programming, like genetics, you know, it's like the word epigenetic, I think has come into play only recently, which is like, okay, here's your genes, but how do environmental factors contribute to how those genes play out? So if I have a gene that would allow me to get like a really deep tan, but I don't spend any time in the sun, right, then we have no physical manifestation of what that gene might do. Similarly, if you have certain genes that are going to make you more perceptible to, to stress, trauma that are going to that are going to maybe change also the way that you perceive your identity in the world like that the idea that something would be malleable doesn't mean that it doesn't have a genetic component you know what i mean i think we sort of like we have a lot of these kind of binary conversations where we assume it's one or the other like it's nature or nurture you know it's it's genetics or it's it's culture but but then we, I think really we find out that all these things overlap in a lot of ways. Like, I, you know, I didn't know the term epigenetic when I went to, I don't think I did when I was in college, this idea that you have genes that may or may not be expressed depending on the circumstance in which you find yourself, right. you know, that, that your genes are, are environmentally potentially turned on and turned off. And so, so yeah, I think it's easier <laughs> to maneuver through the world with really distinct categories. But that's not how the world actually works. You actually studied uh, philosophy at University of Minnesota, right? I did. Yeah, yeah. And even even in philosophy, there's like a branch um, called like the philosophy of science to just sort of like look at some of the ideas that underpin science and how we pursue knowledge in that realm, you know. So I remember digging that class. It wasn't effortless to me. It like took a lot of Reset it. I raised my hand and got the answer wrong a fair bit, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But I liked it. Yeah. You're talking about philosophy, and I'm thinking about also sort of like the whole God and science thing with what we're dealing with with quarantine. There's some people who seem to be separating the two out, and I I kind of feel like in order to reach people that don't necessarily believe in that aspect of it, you can you can have both God and science. Was that something that was covered in philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, if you were to kind of ask ask the person on the street whether or not religion and science coexist. Easily, you know, I, I think 20 years ago, it felt more like an either or for people. But obviously, you know, there there are leading researchers who are people of faith. So I think that depending on the scientist and probably depending on the religion, you'll have some some ideas um, overlap there. I'm an atheist personally, so they don't overlap in me. Yeah. 
we were talking about the whole neuroscience thing last year and, and getting over your ex. I mean, have you, as you continue to, to work with neuroscience, or have, you, have you delved more deeply into the subject since then? Mm, yeah, I mean, I would say that like, um, you know, neuroscience is to, to understand it well, I think it really does ask for some careful thinking about and, and prerequisite knowledge of like what the brain structures are, how they work together. And that kind of information I enjoy learning. I admit, though, that when it comes to like the more chemical level or the um, whatever we're talking about, stuff that can't be seen with the naked eye, that I'm, I'm very often like treading water out of out of my depths. So when we talk about like exactly how it is that uh, that a neurotransmitter docks in its receptor spot i sort of right. like nod along but i know like this is not where <laughs> where where my my brain does its best work yeah, so yeah. i enjoy yeah i enjoy that stuff but i'm bit you know i'm a spectator particularly <laughs> in that part of science yeah you were a medical tech writer at one point too weren't you yeah it was like um you know, my my job right now is as a musician and as a writer and i've done that for a long time so most of my career happens as a performing musician but before I was able to like earn rent and pay bills that way, like a lot of artists, I had I had side hustles to yeah, yeah. like supplement the income, you know, or maybe to make most of rent money that that month. And so I worked as a server, which is you know the time tested occupation of artists, but I also worked as a as a tech writer. So that means that you're given like technical info. So for example, I might be given video footage and some accompanying text right. of a physician who's like threading a lead for a pacemaker, a wire for a pacemaker through okay. the human heart. And that has to be done like in a particular way. So you try to absorb all that information. And then your job is to write that process in a clear sequential text so that it's easy to understand by someone who's going to be talking about that procedure you know so it's like taking a mess of data that might be really technical that's all just piled on your desk and then trying to figure out how to say okay step one yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly have you applied that approach to your art it's interesting i mean i would say that it's not the case that i sit down and like crack open my number two pencil box you know from tech writing <laughs> days to like sit and write a rap song but but i am very aware of clarity like it's very hard sometimes for even a physician who does like the same really difficult procedure every day it can be sort of hard for her to explain that procedure um to someone who doesn't know how to do it already right. it's sort of like when you hear scientists on the radio you ever you ever notice how like the host has to interject all the time and be like Oh, well, when you're saying NHS, what you mean is the national health, like they're constantly using acronyms and they don't even realize it just because in their world, yeah, everybody yeah. knows what those acronyms mean, you know? And so I think it takes sort of a special skill to remember what you know that your listener doesn't know, even if it's just like doing the, the service of defining the acronym every time or not using a really big word that I'm not going to understand because I, I don't have your same job. So I think even when I'm writing rap music um, mm. or ballads, a sound ballad, okay. like being really aware of what I know and trying to remember what the listener does or doesn't know. So even when I use a pronoun, she, to remember like, wait a minute, when was the last time that I actually said who I was talking about? Like, is there any way that I could create confusion about whether I'm talking about my mom or my sister or a stranger I just met? Like, does the listener remember who she is? You know, when was the last time I told them uh, what that pronoun was standing in for? Right. Mm -hmm. Has science figured into any of the lyrics or writing you've done throughout the course mm. of your career, even if it's something, I, not something we would know about? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say I'm allergic to the idea of trying to add like hydrogen, helium, boron, but really like that would just be such a <laughs> like I do. I wince when I hear like really technical content thrown into a song in an effort of sounding smart or trying to sound like you're a Sesame Street guest trying to teach your listeners a, a lesson, but make it fun. Like right. that that doesn't appeal. But yeah, I would say that that I think almost anything that I study often informs the way I look, look you know, look at the world and then that informs in turn the lyrics, like studying determinism and free will. There's a song called Velodrome where it's a, it's kind of an investigation of, of free will and determinism um, without using the word determinism, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so I would think, I think, I think a lot of the times, like the more I know about science generally, I think the less room there is for free will. That's my take anyway. Oh, that's interesting. Does it make you think about your behavior differently then? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And other people's behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Have you found other sort of rappers and musicians that are into science? You find solo science geeks on the road? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to our discredit, like culturally, we sort of, we do paint people in this like monochrome. Like if you're a rapper, that's all you ever do. You know what I mean? If you're a metalhead, that's all you ever do. But like no one actually lives like that. You know, people are, people are varied. <laughs> They've always been, oh, yeah. they, they, we have varied interests. But I know like, um, I think Psalm One, she, she lives in Minneapolis, so she's a stone's throw away. But I think she studied chemistry. Okay. If if yeah, if is I'm she, is correct. She's part of the whole Doom Tree Collective. She's a friend of yeah, a friend okay. and affiliate. She's not in the clique, but she's she's homies with, with the guys for sure. I mean, this is what happens in life. Is that's how you connect with people by your mutual passions. And the reason I did this podcast is because I would do these interviews, like I'll talk to you, and then we'll talk about all these other things that come up, you know. And I can't print them, or there's just not enough room for the quotes. Oh uh, sure. You know, and it, and it's amazing. I've had like hour and a half, two hour phone calls with people. And I have to use like maybe 15 minutes of the conversation. And you're like, it was great to have the conversation. I, I feel guilty at the same time. Like, ah, you know, I want to I put more in there. There's always more room for discussion. Yeah. Is there any sort of scientific pursuit that you're interested in? Something you'd like to get involved with outside of hmm. your music and your, your life? I mean, I've had daydreams. I think at this point, you know, music feels like to try to keep that ship floating. You do have to bail. <laughs> a lot so it doesn't usually leave like too much time at least in my scenario i'm an independent artist you know what i mean so so you you end up doing yeah yeah and it's good i mean work i really dig but it doesn't it doesn't end up um leaving too much time for hobbies but i remember i remember daydreaming about trying to figure out if there was some way to ask or invite invite concert goers to be part of scientific inquiry in a way that they're not because Right now, it's like if you look at medical research, for example, right. um, you find a pretty serious dearth of um, of participants and studies that are really important demographically. So, for example, like if you only if you only study medicines on dudes, then you put yourself in a scenario where you're risking. Um, like women's health you don't really know how a medicine might work differently on her body you know because because he didn't test it right okay so it kind of it can create a vulnerability in our in our understanding which can have like real world consequences and um you know a lot of times like even for psychological experiments the the participants who are drafted are like they way way overrepresent college students because that's who the college profs and master's students are nearby <laughs> you know what right, i mean yeah. so when you need like yeah when you need like 50 people to you know or, or 150 or 
or a thousand people to participate in your study, um, you're sampling not from like the public at large, but from this really particular pool. And I remember thinking like, is there any way that musicians who, um, who might represent fuller demographics could be part of that? Like, I really dig, I really dig the crowdfunding, excuse me, the crowd, the crowd science that happens. Like even when, um, right now you can sign up if you're inclined and look at images and help categorize them for a lot of scientific studies. Um, so let's say you've got a camera in the woods, takes a picture once every three seconds or something for a year, <laughs> you know, just like some ridiculously long amount of time. Okay. And you're hoping to study, um, you're hoping to study wildlife. Well, a lot of times there's such a huge pile of data that the researchers themselves um, could use a hand. And from people who don't have to be experts who could just look at that frame and say like, hey, do you see a creature here? And what kind of creature is it? Here's the five things it might be. Can you let us know? And they have a lot of people look at those images and they help them get mm. sorted a bit, okay. you know? So it's like, yeah, everybody's participating in a way that I think is pretty cool. Were you ever a participant in a college study? I was, yeah. I was part of a study where I did a few of them, but the one that I remember most, I think it was probably related to advertising, like behavioral trends in advertising but you put on a pair of glasses and this pair of glasses tracked where your iris where you were focused so they're okay. tracking your gaze i think we drove around or maybe we just pretended to drive around <laughs> and then yeah, yeah and then i think it was tracking like um where where you looked at potential advertising that's it yeah that's that, that that's an interesting experiment is there any experiment you'd like to conduct or something that would fascinate you in real life to see what how people respond yeah for sure i I'd be curious to know, let's see. So uh, an fMRI machine is a machine that can help indicate what parts of a human brain are at work during a given task. So like... And you went through that. I I did. Yeah, I did. So what happens is like you lie down and you, you know, you go into like a big metal tunnel essentially and you have to hold really still and somebody tells you to do something. And meanwhile, the machine is measuring which parts of your brain are, are at work. And I would love to have people listen to sad songs by both male voices and female voices. Interesting. To see if they respond differently. My pet theory is that they do, but I'd like to know if that's true. So I guess, is there anything else we really should talk about in terms of your interest in science? Mm, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think particularly now, and it's like, it's, it's weird that like, I, I would have never imagined as I was like, uh, you know, in my early twenties in the, in the early two thousands, that being interested in science and leaning into its discoveries would in any way be a political act. But I think culturally, as we move away from, as a lot of our, the, America's political leaders um, do their do their best work to try to decredit science, either by voicing voicing doubt or saying, "Well, a lot of people disagree, so I guess there's no answer," or by defunding things like yeah. the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, or the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. I don't know. It's still sort of like staggering to imagine that that all of a sudden, like science could use. <laughs> a hand like somebody to to stand up for it so i think i think as i in the past few years like i've understood this sort of casual interest in science all of a sudden to have taken on 
like a political and yeah. sort of more yeah like righteous component to it it's important it is fascinating. I think there's going to be a lot of studies that are going to be done, and there, there have been articles written about it, but it, this is something that's going to be evolving over time about why people stick to certain belief patterns. And yeah. lately we're seeing a lot more stubbornness in on all different sides about, about things, but you have a certain group of people that certainly don't, just don't trust science and don't trust intelligence, which is something that's been, unfortunately, like a, a culture war thing. It's not... Yeah. But I, I think that, that element has always existed. I think we've always had people like that that just simply don't want to trust it. I remember being on a medical malpractice case in the jury, and there was just one woman that was just, mm. did not trust doctors. So it was like, wow. no matter what... She wasn't going to trust them. And, and talk about editing science. They wouldn't give us all of the information. You know, we had certain chapters of books, but we couldn't have a full book. Mm. And you kind of needed to have a, a full book, I felt. Again, it's also more complicated than that. Even with the, the current situation with coronavirus, nobody has all the answers. It takes time. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's like we talk about science in this weird way. Like we use that word in a weird way. Well, science thinks. But science isn't a monolithic entity that thinks. Do you know what no. I mean? Like, yeah. And I think sometimes you know, there's the body of knowledge that we've arrived at via science. But it's like science is as much a method of inquiry that like favors data, that favors empirical evidence that strives to be non-biased and looking for sound answers that are supported by the real world, as opposed to looking for convenient answers and relying on dogma. So like the idea of not believing in in science wholesale, I almost wish we wouldn't even get involved in a conversation that pits science as this like cartoon. Do you know what I mean? Of, of Yeah. Of mass knowledge instead of like a system of looking at the world. That wraps up this latest episode of Side Jams. Please join me for the next installment, which will feature AWOL Nation mastermind Aaron Bruno. The tunes used in this episode are from Fox and the Law, and I licensed them through AudioSocket. As always, thank you very much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.